So one of the things that's super exciting about this time of year is super cute kids dressing up in super cute ways. We cannot help ourselves. We have to give them candy for doing this thing. But another thing that happens, too, is people get into pumpkins. And I brought one of my favorite pumpkins here. Sometimes people carve them. Sometimes people paint them. This is a pumpkin that Hannah Warden, if you know Mrs. Warden from down to school, Hannah Warden painted this pumpkin. Now, this is a super cool pumpkin that she did. It's one of the Ninja Turtles. Now, the problem I have is Ninja Turtles have been around a long time, but I've never gotten straight which Ninja Turtle is which, so I keep messing up on which turtle this is. I know they're named after famous Italian artists. There's Michelangelo, there's Luigi, there's Donatello. I start to get confused. Um, Luigi, Francesca, Bastelli. I can't keep them all straight. I just get confused with that. So I, d- I don't know which one is which sometimes, even though I appreciate the pumpkin. Well, the same sort of thing happens to me. It's this exciting time of year that we talk about the Reformation. The Reformation is super amazing. So much has gone on. It's our 500th anniversary, the chance to um, look at and celebrate it. But one of the things that happens is the Reformation has created so many reformers. There's John Calvin. There's um, John Knox, there's Philip Melanchthon, there's um, Ulrich Zwingli, there's William Tyndale, there's Theodore Besa, there's Martin Booster. I can't keep them straight. There's so many of them. And one of the things that's happened is these guys have produced so much material. It's very overwhelming for us now 500 years later. Check out this super big book here, 954 pages. I carry it around just to impress people. But this book has <laughs> just got Martin Luther's writings in it. Look at all these other gentlemen up here who have all written. So we sit here 500 years later wanting to celebrate, wanting to acknowledge the Reformation and what it means over these 500 years, and it's daunting to us. And one of the reasons is because there was so much that the Reformers were needing to work against. The church of the time had made some incredible pronouncements. The Roman institutional church had said things like... We prohibit also that the laity, that you and me, should be permitted, they are prohibiting this, should be permitted to have the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The people were not allowed to have scripture. How many copies of the Bible do you have in your home? You've got something with you right now with that, and you have the freedom to access that. That freedom was taken away before the time of the Reformers. And just as important as that, we declare, we proclaim, we define it's absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. The Pope had set himself up as a supreme authority between heaven and earth. So we think about this time, and it's no wonder these reformers created so much, and it's no wonder we find it so daunting today to understand it. But over time, we've studied the writings of these men, and we've seen the big themes that they talked about. And we come back to the work of these individuals, and we see that we can take the things that they've done, and in an understanding way, Summarize them down to um, five pieces of information that could fit on an index card. I want to um, briefly, in a big picture sort of way, tell you about those five things. We call those five things the five solas. Sola is Latin for the word alone. If you sing a solo, if you fly solo, you're doing those things alone. So a sola is something that alone in of itself is an important thing. There are five of these things that as we look at the voluminous writings of the reformers, we can see that are the themes they return to again and again. One of the first of those is the idea of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our authority. 
This was a returning the scripture to the hands of the people, taking away the authority of the Pope or any human. It was the scripture itself. And so the idea behind this um, led to the idea of studying the Bible for yourself, of translating the Bible into numerous languages and making it available. The second sola was the idea of sola fide, faith alone. That faith alone, we didn't have to um, buy our salvation. The church at the time was selling indulgences. Salvation is something that uh, cannot come about by something that we do. It is by faith. And that faith itself is uh, faith in God, sola gratia, grace alone. Um, there's not a priest between us and God, Christ alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, um, is who that we um, look to as our Savior. And finally, Soli Deo Gloria, that everything we do is done for the glory of God alone. So 500 years of uh, work of the Reformers can seem very intimidating to us, and yet these five big themes let us know the things that were important to them. So as Matthew now takes us into some of the detail of this sort of thought, I wanted to make sure that you had a big picture idea of the work that the Reformers have done. Thank you. Give him a hand. <laughs> so as Kevin has referenced, as Pastor has referenced, on Tuesday we will mark the 500th anniversary of one of the most significant events in the history of the church. In many ways there was nothing extraordinary about what Brother Martin did. At that time, the door of the local church uh, served as a sort of community bulletin board where scholars would post material for discussion. The questions that Martin raised were not even really new. Rather, they were a culmination of a sequence of events that began over a century before. The translation of the Bible into the languages of the people, the invention of the printing press, and a general rise in literacy, not to mention the objections of the church against such developments all set the stage for a paradigm shift. 500 years later, there is barely an area of culture that is not shaped in some respect by the tumultuous debate and division over the questions raised by this young seminarian in an otherwise inconsequential little German town. Yet most people today would have a difficult time explaining what was at stake. After half a millennium, can't we all just get along? Does anybody care anymore? Is it all just water under the bridge? That's ancient history. In fact, most self-described Protestants today haven't the foggiest notion what it is that they're supposed to be protesting. A number of years ago, I ribbed an old friend on Facebook who had identified his religious views as Protestant. Asking him what he was protesting, he quickly responded, indulgences, of course. I accepted that answer with a wink. To borrow from an old hamburger commercial, where's the beef? Was it all just some tempest in a teapot, as some have suggested? And does it really even matter anymore? The ultimate question which divides the Roman church from all of Protestantism is this. How does a sinner find salvation in Christ? That's a pretty important question. It is, after all, the central point of the gospel. 
The two sides could not be more clearly divided on this point, and whoever has got it wrong has distorted the gospel. What we are talking about here is something we call the doctrine of justification. Now, if you remember anything from the last time that I spoke, I hope you'll remember, don't be thrown by that word doctrine. What does that word mean? Doctrine is teaching. A few of you remembered. That's good. I'll take it. Doctrine is teaching. Doctrine is just teaching. The question then is this. What do we teach about how sinners, by nature under the wrath of God, find salvation in Jesus Christ. St. Kevin did a characteristically excellent job in introducing the five solos of the Reformation. Those have been well described as sort of rallying points of the debate between the Roman church and those who joined Luther later in protesting the church's teaching in the 16th century. In our day, in the 21st century, we suffer from a sort of theological ADD, a tendency to rest on soundbite or bumper sticker theology. Don't get me wrong, uh, there is nothing inherently problematic with using simple terms. When I write, I have learned that I must be very intentional to review my compositions, looking for places where I can say the same thing with fewer words or simpler words. There's nothing wrong with a big word except when a simple word will do. Amen? But I digress. Chances are, if you grew up in the Protestant church, you will have heard the differences between our teaching and the teaching of Rome explained in simple terms like this. We believe that we are saved by grace. They believe that we are saved by works. We believe we are saved through faith they believed they are saved through baptism. We believe the Bible. They believe tradition or the Pope. We believe we are saved by Christ's righteousness. They believe they are saved by their own righteousness. All of these, as noted by uh, Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul, are scandalous accusations against Roman teaching. This is a case where oversimplification has muddied the water. Rome has clearly and consistently taught that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. The problem is with that sticky little Latin word, sola, translated alone. To this very day, Rome dogmatically rejects that word alone, teaching instead that we are saved by grace plus works, through faith plus the sacraments, by Christ's sacrifice plus our own righteousness. They hold scripture plus tradition as their authority. Where then did these teachings arise? And, and what led Brother Martin to question them in the first place? Turn with me to Paul's epistle to, ironically, the Roman church. Romans chapter 1, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, X, Romans, Romans chapter 1. And before we read this passage, it is very important that we note that Brother Martin had set out 
at this time to create a translation of the New Testament into his mother tongue of German. For over a millennium, the organized church had held a monopoly on the Word of God. Few lay people could read and write, and even fewer had any access whatsoever to the Holy Scriptures. This was the purview of the church. And not even the clergy were guaranteed to have a complete text. Much to the dissatisfaction of those in charge of the church, all of this had started to change. For the first several paragraphs of his epistle, the Apostle Paul had done the usual housekeeping, establishing his identity, his credentials, um, expressing his desire to bless those in Rome and explaining his travel plans. And then almost without warning, he changes gears in verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written... The just shall live by faith. Suddenly, this quotation of an Old Testament minor prophet, Habakkuk, stopped Luther in his tracks. Here was a man, here was a man who, as a result of his study, had developed such a very strong sense of the holiness of God that he was completely overcome by a sense of his own deficiency in righteousness. Martin would spend hours every day in confession, naming every impure thought and selfish motivation he could bring to mind, to the point where his confessor would break down and say, Brother Martin, get out of here and don't come back until you've done something worth confessing. At this admonition, he would depart brokenhearted, only to return shortly thereafter to confess that his confession had been inadequate. And so he comes to this passage, and he asks, what does this mean that there is a righteousness that is by faith? The 16th century Roman teaching on justification was based on the Latin Vulgate. Latin was the language of scholars, and it was the language of the church. Not only did the 16th century layperson not have access to the scriptures in their language, the entire liturgy of the Mass was held in Latin as well. In fact, it was not until the middle of the 20th century that the Roman church finally ceased using Latin for any part of its liturgy of the Mass. Due in large part to the Roman doctrine of papal infallibility and how they viewed the teaching of their councils, their canons, the Roman church suffers from a sort of theological hemophilia. Uh, if you cut her, she bleeds to death. Because she refuses to admit errors, she must double down on even small deviations to the point where larger problems are bound to arise. 
This also explains why it worked to the church's advantage for lay people not to be digging around in the scriptures. In the Vulgate translation, we find the Latin word justificare, which is a word from Roman state law, combining the Latin word justus, which means justice, and the verb facare, which means to make. Based on this term, in the Vulgate, that was the text that the church used, that they derived their doctrine from, that they taught from. Based on this term, they taught that justification was the act by which God, through the sacraments of the church, would make unrighteous people righteous. But now, Luther is looking at the Greek New Testament. The New Testament in the language in which it was written. And he finds the word dikaiosune, which means to count as righteous, to regard as righteous, to declare as righteous. This was not the kind of inherent righteousness by which God is righteous. Paul was speaking about a righteousness given freely by God's grace to people who did not have any righteousness of their own. Through faith. This was the watershed moment for Luther. Even the writings of the 4th and 5th century St. Augustine confirmed his understanding, showing that this was not even a new idea, but that Paul's teaching was, in fact, well understood in the early church. Finally, Luther saw that the righteousness by which we are saved is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness extra nos, outside of us. It's not a righteousness that comes from us. It rightly belongs to someone else. Specifically, it's the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The righteousness that is inherent to the very nature of Christ is credited to us. Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. This was not the discovery of some new truth. Luther had uncovered a truth that had been twisted and lost over the course of a millennium. A wise man once said, with humans, there's always room for deprovement. You agree? <laughs> it seems no matter how far a man has sunk, there's always a propensity to find that lower still. That's the nature of fallen humanity. It's not inherent to humanity, by the way. Jesus Christ was human and did not fall. But as children of Adam, it is absolutely inherent to our nature. And so... So it is that the conditions are always right for deformation, for the twisting of the truth to meet some desirable end. And even if that desired end is genuinely positive, an error's an error no matter how small. 
A thousand years is a long time with ample opportunity for all kinds of twisting and contorting and compensating to cover the inconsistencies. The prophet Isaiah said it well. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's in us to go wrong. The old song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, the Roman church remains stridently opposed to the teachings of the Reformation declaring those who believe them, us, to be anathema, cursed. Yet the Apostle Paul himself, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, delivers a very sobering warning against her or anyone else who would reject the gospel that Luther recovered that Paul had delivered 1,500 years before. Galatians 1 Starting at verse 6, I am astonished, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a contrary gospel, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. Anathema. So where does the finger point now? I've been enjoying Kevin's class on the history of the people and events prior to and during the Reformation a few weeks ago after class, I mentioned to Kevin that I have been really overwhelmed by a sense of God's hand, even in ordering history, such that the Roman church held such incredible power at the time of the Reformation. In retrospect, we can see how these conditions conspired against a deformed church setting up a sort of perfect storm through which false teaching could be brought to light. Luther never had any intention of starting a new church. That's why we refer to this period and what comes out of it as Reformation. His goal was to correct false teaching and to return to the historic roots of the Christian faith, to the uncorrupted gospel. Even in the case of Luther's torturous compulsion to confess his own sin, we find the law of God at work doing precisely what God designed it to do. When the prophet Isaiah was laid bare before a holy God, his Lord did not offer him a ten-point plan for personal improvement. God's singular solution for sin is the same today as it has always been. The perfect unqualified righteousness of his very son. And that is precisely the point of the Mosaic law. The law was never God's plan for the salvation of his people. On the contrary, it damns us. It reveals to us in no uncertain terms 
our hopeless, desperate position under the furious wrath of a holy God. It drives us to our knees at the foot of the cross where we see that wrath poured out on a perfect, sinless substitute who willingly bore our penalty for the joy that was set before him, the redemption of a people to be his spotless bride. Not only then are we saved from the penalty from sin, that sin is actually expiated, taken away completely, removed from our account. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh my soul. If, if my position before God is in any part dependent on some justifying act of self-righteousness, then I, I tell you, I am hopelessly doomed to a life of misery. To wondering. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're just trying to live right. I'm here to tell you, not only is it not profitable, it's miserable. Not until you've received his righteousness are you even empowered to act rightly, to live in a way that could please God. And, and once you have his righteousness, you're, you're like Martin. You, 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 you want to get rid of the sin. Like the Puritans, who talked about the mortification of sin, killing sin in us. How do we do that? We start by accepting his righteousness and realizing that with that gift, we just want to give it all back to him. That precious truth is the very heart of the gospel, and it is the central point of the Reformation. On the authority of Scripture alone, we rest Assured that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. One of my favorite promises of Scripture is found right in 1 John 1.9. Pastor Chris referred to it just recently. It's one of those passages that bears a precious message on the surface, but on second look it says even so much more. Yes, he is faithful to forgive us our sin as we confess it. That is a precious truth. But beyond that, and even foundational to it, is a stunning statement. He is also just to forgive us our sin. Think about that. God cannot pass over sin. He must judge it. But as we confess our sin in faith, he's actually just to forgive us our sin. And, 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 and there's more. Implicit in that statement is the notion that if Christ has borne the penalty for your sin on the cross... And the Father, by grace, has credited his perfect righteousness to you through faith. It would be unjust of God to punish you for it again. Romans 3, starting at verse 21, reads, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-appeasing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Say it again, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he justifies those who trust him through his shed blood and consequently, because he has justified us, he is just to forgive us our sin while remaining faithful to his own character and to his covenant. <laughs> wow. So, so all of this about stuff that happened 500 years ago, what then is the challenge to the church in the 21st century? Consider this. The only access to God's truth that a 16th century layperson had was at best secondhand. Worship was conducted in a mysterious language they did not understand, yet they lived in fear of falling short of what was represented to them as God's required sacraments and observances. A heavy yoke was on them. Forgiveness and even offices were bought and sold and there was absolutely nothing that a layman could do or say. We have no excuse. Not only do we have the word of God in our own language, we have more translations than Carter's had little liver pills. And, and, and we would rather worry about which one we like best or which one grandma used than give any attention to what it even says. God loved us enough to write it down and we'd rather watch Fox News or ESPN. So, so the call for us today is exactly the same as it was in 1517. And it, it's the same as it was in the first century. The Protestant church in the 21st century is in grave danger of deformation, not because her people lack access to God's word now, but because they are apathetic. They're cold. They've had it easy. We've had it easy. False teachers abound in our time, even right here in our very own community. If somebody tries to tell you that they are your special connection to God, run, don't walk, and tell others, warn others. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit illuminates the word, and Jesus Christ intercedes for you. That's a pretty good hookup, if you ask me. Know the truth. Stand for the truth. Be a Berean. <laughs> Acts 17 is where we hear about the Bereans. Every time Paul would teach, it'd be, you know, somebody would rise up and they'd chase him out of town or try, or try to kill him. And so, so they found themselves in Berea. And verse 11 says, Now they, these Jews, the Berean Jews, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. We've got a precious treasure. We don't have to guess. You don't have, listen, I want, <laughs> Pastor Chris does a great job. And, um, and I trust him. When he speaks, I trust him that he has studied and that he's rightly dividing the word. But Ronald Reagan used to say, trust but verify. This is the thing. Did you know we don't have a prophet here? Faith Baptist Church is a non-profit organization. Okay? <laughs> and so, as I said last time, he wants you to check. Go, go look, search the scriptures. See what he said is true. And when you find out that it is, you'll be like, wow, man, look at this. Because no matter how good a job he or I or, or Pastor Scott or Pastor Charles do of presenting what's in the word, there's nothing better than just sitting down and digging in yourself. Get yourself a spiral notebook. Get yourself a highlighter. Get yourself a pencil and get to work. And you'll find so much more. Know the truth. And don't get caught up in twisting. 1 Corinthians 2. Paul said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The single most important thing that we have to offer this world Yes, social programs are great. Outreaches of various kinds are great. But the single most important thing we have to offer is the gospel. Is the news that you can find rest. That you can find joy. But you'll never find it the way you're striving. You'll only find it through faith. Don't let anybody add something to what God has said. Father, I ask that you give us incredible discernment, Lord. We are, we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to, to, to add things where we, where we shouldn't. And we're so lazy sometimes. We just take what we hear and say, oh, that's really interesting. Teach us not to do that. Holy Spirit, give us discernment. We know that if we're born again, you're in us, you're there. All we have to do is listen. So we ask that you'd cause a great sense of unease to arise when there's falsehood being represented. And may we be faithful to represent the simple truth that on the authority of Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, we can find salvation in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.